We uh, focused on the love of God in our worship, incredibly powerful ideas in the scripture and in the songs. And now we're going to look at a story where that sense of God's unfailing, unconditional, never-ending love uh, just jumps off the page, especially when contrasted with mere religion, which tends to be loveless. And we're going to see that contrast today when we look at a story that uh, many of you may be familiar with, even if you have not spent a lot of time in Christian circles. Uh, the question may give it away to a lot of you as we're in the series, The Questions Jesus Asked. And that question today is, where are your accusers? And the story is in John chapter 8, but we're going to begin reading in John 7, the last verse. I encourage you to grab a Bible and have it open. My norm is to lay out a number of points for you to follow with some sub-points, thinking somewhat linear. Today, we're not doing that. Today, we're just going to work through the story and discover what truth can be revealed in it. And again, we'll begin reading at the last verse of John chapter 7. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the whole group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. But when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and began writing on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And again, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. It's a powerful story. And if you've been in Christian circles for a long time, no doubt you've heard various interpretations, speculation on things like what was written in the sand. (laughs) The key to allowing Scripture to stand on its own is to let it be as much as we can. Our goal when we open up the Bible is not to answer the question, as you often hear me say, but it's worth repeating. Our goal is not to offer the question, what does it mean to you? 
What does it mean to me? Our goal is to answer the question, what does it mean? If John felt the facts were important to be in the story for what he intended to communicate, they'd be there. And so we will not speculate on some of these things, and that may allow us to find a more honest biblical answer to them. But to help you understand this scene, it's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Were you to go back and read through chapters 6 and 7 of John, uh, this whole scene takes place in Jerusalem. And up until this point, most of Jesus' ministry was not in Judea, uh, which is the area surrounding Jerusalem. If Uh, this scene were to take place in New York State, it would be fair to say that Jesus up until this point had done most of his ministry upstate. And now he has come to the Big Apple. And the problem is the Big Apple is home turf, home court for his enemies. They hold the power. And the scene that we are watching takes place in the epicenter of that power, the temple itself. What has transpired during this week is that Jesus, like every other born Jewish person in Israel, had come to Jerusalem as the law had required. The whole nation was to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it is during that setting, when the crowds are massive in the temple, that Jesus comes in, he doesn't come in with fanfare. There's, there's rumors about Jesus. There are people there from the other regions who have heard Jesus speak, who have, who have seen the miracles. There's rumors about a possible Messiah. But Jesus isn't ready for, as we've learned in previous weeks, Jesus isn't ready for that hat to be tipped fully. So he comes in, quietly to Jerusalem, but then he appears right at the heart of the dark empire. (laughs) It wasn't meant to be that. The holy mountain where Abraham had sacrificed or had been intended to sacrifice Isaac and instead God provided a ram, that place where David built a temple for the glory of God that place that was meant to be and will someday be the throne where the true king of kings reigns. In this season was the central power of those who were in opposition to the things of God, who had found themselves looking at Jesus, who we know was the promised Messiah and deciding he was anything but. And were already trying to decide how they get rid of him. And here Jesus walks right into that and presents himself as a rabbi. It says he sat, which is the position of a rabbi, in the outer court, which everyone was welcome to be in, and he began to teach. And and as you go through the chapters that precede this, you see these encounters that come up with the teachers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they're challenging Jesus' teaching right before the crowds. There's this huge moment, and the crowds go back and forth between wanting to acknowledge who Jesus is and wanting to kill him for heresy. And somehow they're not able to lay their hands on them. And at one point, the Pharisees think with all the debate, they've got enough on Jesus that they can arrest him. And they send the palace guards, the the, uh, temple guards to arrest him, and they are unable to arrest him. And the final verses of the chapter that precedes this encounter with not just a, a woman caught in adultery, but with these very religious leaders was a scene where the 
guards report back to them and they have this meeting in the dead of night, frustrated that they were unable to lay their hands on Jesus. But committing themselves to put him to death, to end this threat to their way of life, to their faith as they saw it, to their position, they needed to end this. They were going to find a way to trap him and the best way to do it would be in front of all the people, in front of all the people, so that everybody could see him unmasked for who he truly is. Now, he appears the very next day. This was a Sabbath. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place over eight days, really seven days. It begins on a Sabbath. It ends on a a Friday, but then there's the extra day, the extra Sabbath. And it was on that day that Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives and once again appears in the temple, once again sits to teach, and once again the whole crowd gathers around him. You know, when I've seen movies of this encounter with a woman, what I I remember is sort of like a back alley encounter, you know where Jesus is in some private place because the, the, the interpreters you know, focus on this part where Jesus is alone with the woman. But what we read makes it clear. This happens at the temple court in front of a crowd of what could be thousands of people. And when it says Jesus is left alone with the woman, what they're saying is on center stage. On center stage in front of that whole crowd. So Do you picture what's taking place here? Now, when we walk into this, because we view everything through a human experience, of course, for most of us, we immediately begin seeing the story through the lens of the woman. And, And that's a legitimate lens. And there is a moment where all the focus of the story turns to Jesus' encounter with this woman. But you will lose the beauty of this story if you don't step back first and understand that this is about Jesus and the Pharisees. And the woman is a victim in this conflict. The woman is being used. And and there's a part of the story of her that would be very powerful, but we need to really see what John is laying out here. And you need to understand that the plot has reached this point. And what they're going to do is they're going to trap him with this woman who's caught in adultery. So let's look now, we've set it up, so now let's look at the part, the second movement of the story where the Pharisees set the trap. Here's what the scripture looks like. They come to him and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Let's just walk through this and help you understand how they very carefully lay a trap. That from there, way of thinking was foolproof. There's no way Jesus can get out of of this trap. They begin by calling him teacher. The word for teacher there is the Greek word from which we get the word didactic. And what it means is expert, master of the topic. And that's what they're calling Jesus. Now, we know that they don't think that's who he is. So they're either mocking him or they're kind of honoring him with that title with the hope that he'll be proven that it isn't true. It, it's somewhat like 
on one of the college campuses around us or university campuses, an uneducated, undegreed person shows up in the common, uh, in the main green of the college and sits down and begins talking, let's say WPI sits in the, the central area there and begins talking about engineering in a way that the rest of the professors weren't talking about him, about it, and then tenured teachers who actually know the subject come down and in order to challenge him, they begin by calling him professor. It's that tone. They don't really think he's a teacher. They're, they're, saying, they're basically saying, okay, that's who you think you are. We're gonna tear that apart right now. And then they bring the woman and this is what they say next. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I want to be clear. These facts are never debated or argued. But it is interesting, first of all, that it's early in the morning. Now, last time I checked, most adultery does not take place at dawn. I'm sure it does. I have no experience with it. (laughs) So my assumption is that sometime during the evening, this woman is caught, and and notice what it says, in the very act, imagine that. Imagine being discovered in, in, in the very act of what is maybe your darkest secret. And then you're held, you're brought before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, instead of treating you the way they normally would, as, as those who would impose the, the law on her, realize there's an opportunity here. So they hold her and instead bring her and expose her before these thousands of people who are gathered here. I wanna tell you, at that moment she became an abused woman by the Pharisees. You know, there's a, I wanna show you, then they move on to the next, the next thing where they say, here's the third statement. Now, the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, that is a half-truth. Here is one of the two places where the law is laid out regarding adultery. John, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, say it with me. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, the man and the woman must be put to death. So if you go back to the Pharisee's statement, what is missing here? (laughs) Yeah, the guy. The guy. Where is he? This is what you get every time you put the Pharisees and Jesus into a conversation in the Gospels. You get the opportunity to contrast the mission, the message, and the work of Jesus with man-made religion. And it is exposed for all of its darkness right here. You see, the Pharisees and the religion, as it as oral tradition, which eventually by the third century became known as the Mishnah, as oral tradition and Pharisaical law had created a man-made religion that had taken miles of steps farther removed from the actual law. They had all sorts of details, and, and what really was called Judaism in its day was really a far removed thing from what God had given to the nation of Israel centuries before because of these added man-made laws. It was a religion. 
Now, you have heard me say this before. We followers of Jesus do not call what we do a religion. Now, from a cultural, you know, from an anthropological perspective, yeah, Christianity is one of the great world religions, but we contend, and I contend to you today, that to really understand who Jesus was and what his mission was and the life into which he calls us is not to become a participant, not to choose this religion over other things. Religion is man's attempt through determining a set of beliefs, a set of rules for how we live our life, and a set of celebrations and ceremonies is man's attempt to reach God. And the problem with all religion is less in the merits of those belief systems and more in the people that practice them. Because the problem of reaching God is not found in, in, in living a better life and following certain ceremonies. The problem is our broken heart, which religion can't fix. Our, our, our morally broken spirit, uh, religion can't make up for. It's, it's that. God says in Isaiah 59 too, your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to turn my face from you. And he's saying that to people that are doing all the right religious stuff in the tabernacle. He says, I, I, don't even, I don't even hear you. Or I should say in the temple by that point. You see, so religion has the same problem that political systems have. You know, we, we could sit here and we could debate what we think is the best political system and it would probably divide out by generation <laughs> or degree, you know, amount of education. But, you know, the problem with any political system is always the people running it. As long as broken people run political systems, that political system fails. So the problem with our polit- politics is, is the problem with our religions. And the Pharisees show what happens. The people that have the power also can manipulate it to their favor. And all too often, it's the men who are in power and it's the women who are victimized in religion. I remember a conversation that I had with a young man who was here as a student and he was a practitioner of a certain Middle Eastern religion and he had no qualms about the fact that he was, you know, dating and having sex with as many women as he could while he was in America. And he saw himself as a faithful devotee to his religion. And when I asked him about, well, what about your wife? His answer was, well, she better be a virgin. You following my point here? Whoever has control can always manipulate it and because power corrupts and we are corrupted in the first place. We, you know, corrupt corrupts. <laughs> and because that's true, there is always an unfair and ungodly application of religious rule. And, and we see it here. They are so devoted to their religious rules that they forget their primary concern ought to be the soul of this woman. And they don't even care about that. They'd rather use her and use their religion as a way of disposing of God. Are you following me? Do you understand why that's so important? And that's when they spring the trap, when they ask him, now, we know what Moses says, but 
what do you say? And I picture them just sitting back going, we got him. And here's why. If Jesus says, yeah, that's what the law says, you should stone him. Now, Jesus is responsible for the stoning. And then all this talk about love that he's put out, well, where does that go? And even more so, uh, the, the Roman government did not look favorably on Pharisaical law being practiced like that, and Jesus would have been in bad standing with the Roman authority. So they win there. They can now bring him before Rome as a troublemaker to be dealt with. But if he denies the law of Moses and says, no, no, there's this thing called grace and love, well, then he can't be the Messiah. He can't be of God because he's denying the word of God. See, they've got him. They've got him. And then there's the third movement, Jesus' response. It's interesting. He bends down from his sitting position and he begins writing in the dirt. Now this is where a lot of the you know, possibilities come. If you've heard a sermon about this and you've heard speculation about what Jesus was writing in the dirt, what, what, are, some of the, what are some of the things you've heard? Yeah. He was writing the sins of the people around them. What else? He was writing scripture. I heard one, one person speculate he was writing the names of the Pharisees' girlfriends. <laughs> now, <laughs> all of those things would sure make for an interesting plot line, but that's not where John is going here. Um, and, and here's where I think he's going. First of all, recognize that the oral tradition which would become the Mishnah, about the Shabbat, the Sabbath, which has huge regulations, paid volumes and volumes of regulations on the Sabbath, forbid you from writing more than two words on the Sabbath, except if you were writing in the dirt. Did you know that? There you go. John's readers knew that. So, first of all, Jesus is probably saying, I understand the law that you're applying to me. I, I know what the law, here's one of them right here. But I think there's something even more powerful. Go back, just look back at verse seven, and I will explain why this applies so beautifully. I should say chapter seven. And look with me at one of the things that Jesus begins during the festival when he begins his teaching and then has another encounter with the Pharisees. Uh, verse 37 on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he shouted with a loud voice. So he's going for it right there in the Pharisees' hearing. And this is what he says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him. We've heard Jesus promise that to other people. The Samaritan woman, he promised that at the well. And he talked about living water. But that concept, that's a, a, an analogy that comes from the Old Testament for those who receive and honor the promised one of God or, or God's promises. Now, I wanna show you where that is in Scripture. Here's where it is. It's Jeremiah 17. I want you to say it with me. Those who turn away from you will be Oh, do you see that? 
Let's, finish, let's say it again from the top. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Do you see how all that pulls together now? Do you see how in this encounter, Jesus puts himself up as the, the one that the Lord has? He is the Lord. He has come. He is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And those who respond to him as the spring of living water will have water flow and, and, dwell, and rise up from within them. But those who reject him will have their names written in sand. You get it? Yeah. So I, I can't say for sure what Jesus is writing, but the symbolism is so powerful there. It's so powerful. You see, in the Old Testament, this is contrasted with, with our names being written in the book of life. So that, and that idea of the book of life carries into the New Testament all the way into the book of Revelation and eternity and the final judgment. Those whose names are written in the book of life will be spared standing before God and answering for their sins, covered by the blood of the Lamb. They will be forgiven and welcomed into eternal rest. And this is a contrast. So my name is written in the book of life and I'm permanently marked for heaven or my name is written in the dirt. And we all know what happens when we write in the dirt or the sand. The water comes and washes it away. Feet trample on it. Wind blows it away. The point there is your whole life will be blown away and wasted. And I, I think, as I see this, that Jesus is teaching and pointing to the difference between those who have already rejected him and those that he has offered who would come to him, the living water of God. It's amazing how just a small act can speak so much when we just let it stand. But then they, they keep pressing him for an answer because <laughs> they want him to take the bait. And so he straightens up and, and this is what happens. Go back to that passage. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, no, no, I'm sorry, it's not on there, is there? Is the passage on there where he says, let those without sin cast the first stone? Do I have it up there, Dan, or not? Maybe not. I'm going to read it. There we go. So they begin questioning him. This is what he says. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And I think there's a moment where the Pharisees and the religious teachers kind of sit there. And then it slowly begins dawning on them. They start going, what, what just happened here? We had plan A, which was a win. We had plan B, that was a win. What happened here? What happened here? That's another great question. It's not really a question, it's a statement. If any one of you is without sin. So what Jesus accomplishes here, first of all, is that anybody who picks up a stone 
has to proclaim that they are righteous. Secondly, they're now going to be the ones that take responsibility for the stoning. I, I mean, it's, it's quite brilliant what he does here. And then it says, from the oldest down, they began to leave. Now, I, I'm not sure why that's the case. Uh, you know, some speculate that the youngest are the hardest ones admitting wrong. I just think, you know, I'm old enough now that, hey, if I'm losing the game, I forfeit. I'm not going to put out more energy than I need to. If I'm, if I'm, you know, if if you're way ahead, congratulations. Pass the Gatorade. It's time. Maybe they were just the first ones to say, okay, this did not go the way we planned. And they headed off. Or maybe what Jesus was writing reminded them of their own sin. We, we, we just don't know. But we do know that it ends. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's brilliant. It's divine how Jesus answers this. And finally what we're left with, albeit in front of likely thousands of people, is Jesus left alone at center stage with this woman. And so now we see this encounter with this woman. And now you can go forward to that passage. Thanks, Dan. Jesus straightened up and he asked her. And I kind of picture him, you know, writing in the sand as though in the same way the Pharisees had to get his attention to answer them. It's like he's not even paying attention as they're leaving. He's not counting. He's just writing. And so I, I think I, I picture him being a little dramatic. He, he looks up and goes, where is everyone? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? That's the heart of the question that we're looking at today. And the woman answers, no one, sir. Now, here's the power of this moment. This woman is guilty of what? she has been accused of. Yeah, there's some, some guy out there that's gonna have to stand before God about it too. But this woman is guilty about it. Jesus asks her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? This woman is standing before the only person in this scene who has every right to condemn her who has every right to pick up a stone and stone her were the law of Moses applied because he is the only truly sinless one. He's the only one without sin. Scripture says that our Savior was tempted in every way that we were tempted, but yet he was without sin, and it's why he could be the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. She is standing before the one who has every right to condemn her, to judge her, and to, and to pass sentence on her. Do you see the power here? And yet her answer is, no one, sir, which means either she didn't have a clue of who she was standing in front of, and sometimes ignorance is bliss, because <laughs> she was still getting his grace anyway in that moment. Or maybe she knew and suspected, and this was a statement of faith. 
Maybe they ought to have a question mark at the end of it. No one, sir? And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now, if you're in the NIV, which is our, our uh, pew Bibles, the New International Version, uh, that verse probably begins with the word then, as though Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. It's not, that's not in the original Greek. And it actually takes away the power of the statement. If you see it that way, it's as though Jesus is saying, well, if they're not going to condemn you, I'm not going to condemn you. But that's not what he's saying here. Jesus is saying the one who could condemn her, the one who had every right to pass sentence, he looked at her, he straightened up, made eye contact with her, and said, I'm not going to condemn you either. What did Jesus give that woman in that moment? And this is very important. Jesus gave her pardon, not acquittal. Think about it. He granted her pardon, not an acquittal. Jesus never debates the facts but he pardons her in spite of her sin. And then the next time he speaks, he says, I'm the light of the world. And he contrasts what he brings with those who deliver darkness because that's what the crowd has just seen, darkness and light doing battle. And he holds out what light brings, it brings life for those who turn to it. And then he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. You know, that statement is as important as everything else because it's why John put it in the story. It means something. That statement keeps us from concluding, well, if God can forgive that, then I may as well live any way I can because God's going to forgive it. So here is the bottom line at the end. Here's what we're left with when we look at the Samaritan woman and compare her to ourselves, and that is that, yes, God can and will forgive any sin except the sin of the unrepentant. It's why the turning from that life, it's the sin we confess that we repent from that allows God's pardoning to work into our life. It's why grace isn't cheap. It's why God's love is so powerful because it calls us out of darkness. You see, sin can have no more place in a follower of Jesus' life than darkness can have in the presence of light. And that's what he calls her into. I haven't looked at my notes in a long time here. Let's see if I'm on script. I think I was on God's script today. How do you relate to this story? I'd like to suggest that you think of yourself as a combination of two different characters in this story. Because in a real sense, we are all Pharisees. 
We are all like the Pharisees. We all want to practice religion in as much as we want to see people who have hurt us and ours or who, who have hurt our country or you know, done things that we, that we think are despicable. We want to rejoice in their demise. We want to celebrate when they get sick, when their businesses go under. We're all Pharisees. We want to see people who hurt us get what they deserve. Some of us are Pharisees because that's our Christianity. Our Christianity is all about the rules, not about the souls, just like the Pharisees. We'd rather see people shunned than repentant. We'd rather argue for a God who is holy as though holiness can be separated from love and mercy and grace. Uh, could be a Pharisee that way, but we are all in one way or another Pharisees. But here's the reality. We are all the woman caught in adultery. We are all that. I want you to look at this verse that Jesus says in Luke chapter eight. Say this with me. There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought into the open. This picture, this, this short scene in John's gospel is a foreshadowing of what all of us will experience someday. Someday, our darkest parts will be revealed and, and we will be exposed for who we are. And Jesus points, about, points to that. And so in that sense, someday we will all stand before the sinless one <laughs> who alone is worthy to pronounce that we are guilty and would have every right to pass sentence on us. But that's not all that Jesus says because his purpose isn't that. His purpose isn't to expose us. His purpose is to redeem us. John's gospel is so beautifully written. It stands apart from the other three gospels, what we call the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke really track with each other almost. Some of the stories are are verbatim in, in those three, but they're just written to three different audiences, and so therefore they emphasize particular truths that will help those audiences come to embrace Jesus. John's gospel is completely different. He begins with this beautiful allegory. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing has been made that has been made. A few verses later, he says, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we jump down into the narrative and we pick up at Jesus' years. John, the forerunner, introducing Jesus. No birth analogies, no no pre-ministry. We jump right into the ministry and John's purpose in all of his writing 
He reveals himself to us at the end of the gospel. He begins powerfully, and at the end, he says, more things were written about Jesus. Probably more than could fit in all the books. Or, or more, Jesus did more things than, than could fit in all the books. But I have written these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing, you might have life. And everything from the first words to that end has that purpose in it. And this story reveals something powerful. But everything Jesus says in it. There's a point early on in the gospel where one of the very Pharisees that stands before the crowd with Jesus has an encounter with him. We know that he's there because his name is mentioned in the conversation in chapter seven. His name is Nicodemus. He debates in chapter seven, still thinking maybe we ought to give this some time and he's shut down, but he's still in the Pharisees when this scene with this, uh, the woman caught in adultery takes place. But there's an earlier encounter where that Pharisee goes to Jesus at night, right, secretly. He, he has some questions on his own he wants to ask. He's trying to figure out who Jesus is. So he comes in at night, and some of you have heard me imagine how this went. I think he says, I've got some questions. I'm going to get in. I'm going to ask my questions. I'm going to leave. None the worse for it. So he comes in at night, he begins his spiel that he's practiced. Rabbi, we know that you must be sent from God for no one can do the things that you do unless the Lord sends him. That's just his intro statement. He takes a breath to launch into his questions and Jesus cuts him off right there and says, Nick, you've got a problem. You need something that your questions aren't gonna answer. You have to be born again. That's the first time that phrase is used. Jesus introduced it, now we've used it and abused it to the point where it's kind of lost its power. It's comical to the world around us. But it was powerful in Jesus' day. But in the same way, we, we don't understand it. Uh, the first listener, Nicodemus, didn't understand it. And he's thrown off his game, so now he's peddling. He's treading water, and so he throws out a joke. So what, uh, do I have to climb inside my mother's womb again? And then Jesus says, no, no, that, that's being born of water. You have to be born not just of water, but of the Spirit. See, that's what he means when he talks about being born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus has set the context. Jesus is correcting him. We had three kids. Every time, they were born of water. Every time, the water broke. And they were born, that's what Jesus is speaking of. I've told you about the one couple that we were, we were friends with who were due about the same time that we were due and, and uh, she uh, delivered first and she told us the story. She, when, she, when her water broke, she was in a, a grocery store and it broke, I mean, whoosh, and she's standing there and she realizes she's in the jarred good aisle. So she grabs a jar of pickles and goes, whoosh, the clerk comes and takes a look and goes, oh, don't worry, ma'am, we'll clean that up. Thank you very much. 
Jesus says to her, he says to Nicodemus, I'm sorry. Jesus says, that's one birth, but then you have to be born of the Spirit. And it's that conversation, I've, I've said all this, you're wondering how this connects to the woman caught in adultery. I've said all that to build up to the point, it's in that conversation that the most well-known verse in scripture for many people is said, it's John 3:16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the basis for your spiritual birth. How many of you know that verse? Sure, many of us do. Fewer know the next verse. All that to get to here. Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. See, that's the difference between religion and Jesus. Religion ultimately serves one purpose, to condemn us, because none of us will ever measure up. And Jesus doesn't need to condemn. We know our hearts. When we stand before him and we look him in the eyes, everything is revealed. But he offers us pardon. That's what his work on the cross accomplished. We are all guilty. There's no acquittal coming your way. Don't think you can give it to yourself because you know yourself. You may be pretending with everyone else, but you know, you know your heart. And the one who alone has the right to condemn you for that and to pass eternal judgment instead wants to say to you, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. He wants to offer pardon. And he made that possible by taking the punishment, by taking that condemnation on the cross. Because he didn't come to condemn us. He came to redeem us. And that's what we see in this story. And Our answer needs to be by faith when he says, where are your accusers? Because of the merits of Jesus, our answer needs to be, no one, sir. And then he invites us to turn from our life of sin and follow him. And so a perfect moment for us to transition into celebrating the gift that Jesus gave his church to remind us that pardon has been made possible through his mission on earth, the cross, and that's to celebrate the Lord's table. And so as we come forward to participate, can we hear those final words as well? Now go and leave your life of sin Can we, as we partake, respond to this story in such a way that we remember Paul's words in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, brethren, in view of God's mercies to offer yourselves 
as living sacrifices. Here's what that means. What we are saying is, Lord, because you offered yourself as a redeeming sacrifice for me, I offer myself as a living sacrifice for you, holy and pleasing to you. I want to encourage you to make that as a pledge. Hear Jesus calling you to that life of holiness, free from condemnation. Let's pray together.